My guest today is Sunaina Sina, who is shuttering the thick glass ceiling in private equity. In addition to being a regular on CNBC, Bloomberg and the BBC, Sunaina is often quoted in the media on market insights and private capital advisory. But what I love the most about Sunaina is how she has used her passion for wine to become a certified sommelier. So I have to ask you, my podcast is for the Naughty Bites. What's your guilty pleasure? My guilty pleasure, I have two. Um, awesome. Never met a dark chocolate I didn't like. And my favorite is Nama chocolates from Japan. They have the dark chocolate range there, which is basically a slice of heaven for me. Um, and then I have one ethnic pleasure, which is comes from home base in India. And it's a a sweet dish from India called Kajuki Burfi, which is made out of cashew nuts. Such a cashew nuts and cream. What could go wrong? It is just <laughs> another slice of heaven. And I don't like the good, healthy version that's made at home. I make sure my mom goes and buys it from the bazaar, you know, <laughs> properly made for the mass audience. That's me. That's how I like it. Awesome. And does it have condensed milk in? Oh, of course. Cashew of course. condensed milk and cream. That's it. <laughs> Oh, so naughty. I love stuff like that. It's like a moment on your lips is a lifetime on the hips Completely. and everything else. Yes. Worth it. <laughs> so yes. I have to ask you, one of the things that fascinated me about you was the fact that you're a certified sommelier. How did you manage to do that? You know, I taught the wine class at Stanford for many years, ended up falling into that because I was living in the French house and they needed me to teach something with a connection to France. And so I said, well, let me teach wine. And we were at the doorstep at Stanford to Napa and Sonoma and ended up working with a number of the preeminent winemakers in those wine regions to come and teach this group of impressionable Stanford students. The class Mm -hmm. became one of the most popular classes ever run at Stanford and got me deep into the wine world. When I moved to London a few years later, I decided to put all that wine knowledge to the test and sit for the Court of Master Sommelier, Certified Sommelier um, qualification. It was a three-day long test down in Devon. And lo and behold, I I somehow managed to pass. And and that's how (laughs) I got my official accreditation. But wine is nothing but joy for me. I love the complexity of wine and trying to decipher that complexity and digest it. Very similar to the muscles I use when I do my work in financial services. So certainly a part of my brain I like to like to evolve this time on the palate. I like how you've brought the connection of your job with your wine. It's, it's perfect. It's a certain symmetry to that. <laughs> Definitely. So, and you know, I live in a world where it's all about golf and it's all about... <laughs> All these sports that, unfortunately, I don't play, you know, a lot of community around golfing in particular. Mm. Uh, but my connection to these people is through wine because most of them do end up having uh, a connection a to the wine world or like enjoying wine. And so I'm able to connect that way. That's amazing. But I have to ask, you know, you grew up in a South Asian household and hard work, like you've just mentioned, has always been a thing in South Asian culture. Do you think that's had a bearing on your success and who you are as a person now and how it's reflected in your job? It it absolutely has. You know, my parents growing up said two things to us consistently, that we can't, you know, they weren't 
who were wealthy. They they couldn't leave us an industrial house to manage and become, you know, be successors to them in some kind of family business or wealth. They said, listen, there's two things we'll give you. And if you have them, you will never want for anything else. The first is education that we will put you in front of. You get the educational opportunities. We'll figure out how to get those um, to you, deliver to you. And the second was work ethic. And so I grew up watching both mom and dad work incredibly hard. My mom, even though she was a homemaker, she was a stay-at-home mom. She worked incredibly hard for the family and on her family projects. Mm-hmm. And um, in her life of service that she did to, to members of her family and community around her, I watched that. And I watched mm-hmm. my dad throw his entire being into his work. And that became a huge mantra for me. It, for me, it was mm-hmm. all about... As Robert Frost says, make your vocation your avocation. So it doesn't feel like work. You're excited Mm -hmm. to get up and go do it. Even when the going is tough, you know that you enjoy at its essence what you do. So that's become a huge anchor of my life. And I hope to pass that on to my three kids that, listen, work ethic matters. And if you've given your Mm -hmm. best, it's part of the growth mindset, which I espouse uh, very much to to my team and to my uh, community, which is as long as you show up with your best and you try your hardest, the outcomes are not in our controls, but our inputs really are. And that very much is driven by work ethic. I think that's fantastic. You know, I think it's wonderful that you've taken things from both your parents and applied yeah. it to your to your life now. So, yeah. you know, you're a, a woman on top, you're South Asian. You know, there's so many things I want to ask you about improving diversity and inclusion in the workplace. You know, how have you done that in the company where you work and own? You know, do you have gender diversity? Do you have is there racial diversity? And, you know, inclusiveness is so important. It's a, a thing of the mind and of the workplace. What measures have you taken to ensure that, to make sure everyone feels welcome and, you know, as part of one group? Yes, it's such a good question because I have a global team here at Raymond James, close to 50 people in five offices all across the United States and, and uh, people from all over the world here, in, in both in our London and our U.S. offices. Um, we're proud to say that over 50% of our team is women and minorities. Uh, makes us one of the most diverse teams in financial services, period. I think for me, it comes from leading from the front. And what does that mean? That means be the change you wish to see. If I want the industry or if I want the world to respect diversity, grow diversely, be inclusive, if I don't do it in my business, where am I going to do it? So my first lesson here is be the change you wish to do. see. If you want to see more diverse workplaces, you create a more diverse workplace and show that it can be done. Second thing is it helps that there is diversity at the top of my business, right? I read the business. I'm a, a woman of color. Uh, the number two, who's my COO, who runs the operational side of the business. She's obviously a woman. And for the organization to see that we are meritocratic and we walk the talk really matters and helps them feel seen and heard. And then, of course, making sure that anybody who joins us knows that that value is incredibly important to us. That we value not just the diversity you see, diversity of a person's color or diversity of person's um, a, a racial background, but also the diversity you don't see. I have a couple mm-hmm. of members of my team 
um, who for, are the first folks in their families to break out of their socioeconomic strata, go to university, get a master's, work in financial services, and be senior or mid-level, in some cases, uh, individuals in investment banking. That's huge. That's not diversity you would necessarily see. But that arc, that storyline is one that I'm immensely proud of for them. So there's lots of different types of diversity, diversity that doesn't necessarily meet the eye. All of it comes together to bring a diversity of thought process, because that's what really matters is do we have people around the table come from different walks of life in our business? We have to work with investors from all over the world. And I know that by having a diverse workplace here and a diversity of, of backgrounds, of people of color, of, of, of gender, and so on, I know I have a workforce that can connect from investors from all over the world and find commonality with them. And that's what it's all about. And do you think that sort of investing in a person is also part of, you know how you said before, you should be happy to go to work you know wake up in the morning and you feel like I want to go to work because I love my workplace do you think that employee well-being has helped you and your company with all the decisions and the process of your work as well as thinking about environmental sustainability within the workplace yes I think two very important questions there in what you said the first is well-being and and prioritizing that you know, I have been a huge proponent and the, my team knows this and they think they probably hear me talk about it way too often of preventative mental health. Mm. We all talk about mental health when things go wrong, but how about building resilience and building your mental skills so that you have the reservoir for when things go wrong? Because they always do in your personal yeah. life, in your professional life, mm. is something's always going topsy-turvy and how do you deal with that? So that's been hugely important. And having me repeat that to the team shows them that it's important. But I realized uh, 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 a couple of years ago that that wasn't good enough. I needed to make sure that I help preserve that well-being time for people. So, for example, little things, and it seems little to me, but it was important for me to show from the front that it it mattered. That when someone takes vacation, we respect that vacation time. Of course, if all health breaks loose and we need them, then we need them. But that's an emergency use case rather Mm. than, hey, I'm on holiday, but I'll be checking in for a few hours every day. I've been very uh, prescriptive with certainly certain individuals that I know are guilty of that to say, (laughs) hey, you're going to take this vacation off. Here's how we're going to cover for you. Everything will be here when when you come back. We really need you to take this time off, rest, recover prioritize your well-being. It's important to the business that you do that. So Mm -hmm. I'm having that conversation very directly with individuals, um, certainly in the last couple of years, uh, and making sure that's not something that they take for granted and they don't gloss over it and say, yeah, I'll check in for a few hours of work. You know, it's that mental load. They need to unwind and it's important. Also doing that myself. So every year I take 10 days to go to a Vipassana meditation course. It's something I've done once a year, Mm -hmm. every year for a over a decade now. And so the team sees me just shut off, right? I'm not contact. There's an emergency contact information given to the team in case of emergency, but I'm not contactable. I'm not checking my phones. I'm not in mail when I'm in silent meditation. And they see me do it, which inspires them to do it. And ESG, environmental and sustainability and governance issues play part of that, right? Part of ESG Mm -hmm. is the diversity mantra. 
a part of governance of the business. So making sure that the governance of the business uh, remains diverse, but also we do our part to ask our parent, Raymond James, to focus on environmental sustainability, uh, making sure if in small ways, in big ways, we know how to preserve our planet in our day-to-days, yeah. especially when we're going about our work where we, again, say, okay, well, that's not for us. There must be a corporate policy that covers that. No, no, it actually is for us. Here are some ways. Did we really need to print, to print that deck out? Did we really need to go bind it with plastic? No, we didn't. Yeah. So then let's figure out how. what are some better ways to go about and, and execute on our business. So things like that have been very close to my heart for a while. So for me, from what you've just said, it's more like lead by example as well. What you're teaching is you know, what you're saying in your workplace is what you're actually doing, which makes people feel more comfortable as well, thinking, well, you know, I'm following what my boss is doing. And I, it's more, it's more like people feel more relaxed, more comfortable and go, oh, okay, you know, this is not a stressful environment. It's not one of those companies that says all these things, but in reality, they do not do it. So I think it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, I think it's important to walk the talk, but, you know, I realized, uh, Isha, that sometimes that's not enough as well. Mm. Like on the vacation time, people are very driven. They feel they can't shut off. And that's where I've got to go take one step further saying, hey, you can shut off. I need you to shut up. I need you as your boss for you to go prioritize your well-being, your family time. Off you go. We'll handle everything. Everything will be here when you're back. But the business requires you to prioritize your well-being because if you burn out, the business will suffer. So that, you know, it's been part of my own learning and evolution that I thought, okay, but because I say all these things and because I do them, I'm sure Mm -hmm. everyone will follow. Not always the case. And so I've had to go one step further in making sure people prioritize it because I have the ability to do that as their job, as their boss. And I think that's important. Definitely. And I think, you know, with your job, you must deal with a lot of pressure. How do you maintain focus and progress? Um. For me, the anchor of my day every day is meditation. Okay. I'm a full-time working mom of three kids, travel a lot, lots of clients and team and family that need me and need pieces of me on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. For me, it starts with a full mental reset every morning. I meditate for an hour. Uh, come what may, come rain, come shine, no matter what crisis is happening, I will sit and do that. Oftentimes it's before the family wakes up. So I take a golden hour just before um, the kids are up in the morning, somewhere between five and six in the morning. But if I'm tired, I've traveled, I've jet lagged, et cetera, it could be a little bit later, but I'll make sure I find that time before the rest of my day begins. And, you know, I people will often say, an hour to meditate, that's too long. That's so long. How did you get, you know, when I started to meditate daily, it wasn't for an hour. It was for five minutes. Okay. And five minutes a day became seven minutes a day. And I said, oh, let me try 10 minutes. Oh, I can do that. So 10 minutes mm-hmm. becomes my new normal. And soon 10 will become 15, will become 20. And over a while, suddenly you will find yourself doing the full hour and using that as a huge mental reset to your day. So mm-hmm. my advice to everybody has been, that's what's worked for me. Figure out what works for you and do it consistently. It's okay. mental health, focus, well-being, channeling your energy, preserving your energy, they won't happen automatically. And guess okay. what? When things go into a spin, that's when all of it will feel like it's it's hard to access until or and unless it becomes muscle memory, right? If you okay. think about any sports champion, the reason they chain, train so hard is when the pressure is high, when it's game day, 
or where it's when it's time for the Olympics and they've got to perform the muscles fire because the muscles are like, Oh, we know exactly what to do. We've been training for this night and day. The muscles just go into autoplay and know what they're doing, even though your brain may be playing games with you. The Mm -hmm. same thing with your practice It's when things are upside down, you're like, Oh, I know how to go into a quiet zone. I know how to, to center myself. I know how to get into a place of peace and quietude and awareness and get back up and go at, go at it again. That's curious you said that. You know, um, during December, our swimming baths closed for two months. And I noticed that after my pregnancy, my lower back was never the same. And um, I thought, what can really help it? So I started swimming three times a week. And then not, and then all of a sudden, after a month, it disappeared. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. Two months of not swimming, it came back. As yeah. soon as I started swimming again, it disappeared. It's, amazing, it's like right? muscle memory. I was like, yeah. I feel like a new person, but yeah. it's remarkable how clever your body is. It's it's amazing. And now yeah. I can do everything again like normal. It was just, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's, for me, swimming, yoga is, like in a piece yeah in a piece exactly I have to take a line from Kung Fu Panda for sure yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then so I have to ask communication is a massive part of your, do- your of your job but how easy or hard has that been um for you during your career because as a woman you're on the board of directors have there been situations where it's been difficult to get across what you want to say and getting the support from your colleagues uh, public speaking is a skill that can be learned, right? There are certain skills that are harder to learn. Public speaking is not one of them. So if you're mm-hmm. if you feel you're not good at it or you feel you could be better, go take a course and get better. I remember one of the things that I did very much as a young child, I think I must have been eight or nine, was to take there was an extracurricular core extracurricular activity in my school called public speaking, and I took that. Mm-hmm. And it just forced me over and over again to get on stage and read a poem, get on stage wow. and read a passage. I just got used to that at a very early age. And I kept that going throughout my life. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me. And it's something that. Apologies for that. No, that's fine. So. It's it's some it's a muscle that can be built, and the more you do it, the better you get at it. Okay. Is it has it always been easy? No, I still get nervous, just like anybody who does public speaking. It's normal to get the butterflies before you get up on stage, but you've got to find your own style and be comfortable in that style. It doesn't always resonate with everyone that listens to me. There's sometimes they may find my tone or my. Uh, my cadence to be a particular way, not to their liking, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Part of the issue with public speaking is that you really need to land your points and you figure out the tools and the skills you need to get your points across. Anisha, does it always work? No, yeah. but I know that because I have the amount of practice under my belt that 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 I do, that it gives me a really good shot at it and that I know that there are a few different tools in my arsenal I can use and there are certain ways I can change my style and certain ways I can't change my style to make sure that it resonates with the audience. And I think that um, it's got nothing to do with anything other than practice. So my advice to anyone listening would be, if you don't think you're as good at it as take a course, there's lots of them available online. It's even better if you go take one in person because you get the feel of 
doing this over and over again with an audience listening to you live in action. And then give yourself reps. Maybe go go speak at a school. Go speak in all of these low-risk situations. Go speak at your local community event, church events, temple event. Go find some low-risk places at your next family get-together. You give the, the talk. Find ways to do reps in front of groups of people, and you'll find yourself getting better and better. That's amazing. And I will take note on that one as well. So <laughs> how would you determine the right response for your company when it comes to responding to political shifts more generally? Like things are changing all the time at the moment in different countries. What's What has been the best practice for you? Best practice for me has been be inclusive. And sometimes people don't get this. They're like, well, it has to be this way. How could it not be? this is the right thing. And so people are so quick to judge what they believe to be righteous at all ends of the political spectrum and belief Mm -hmm. spectrum, right? Well, your right may not be his or her right. And so making sure there's space for different belief systems is really, really important that we, and this is why we have diversity, that we don't get into groupthink. We don't get into mono, uh, monolinear thinking as a team. And so for me, it's always been telling, letting the team know that wherever you fall on the political spectrum, no matter your views, should there be pension reform? Should there be not be? Should there be judicial reform? Should there not be? Should there be this law, that law, this candidate? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. We understand that you may hold a certain set of beliefs. Okay. We won't impose ours on you. We ask that you don't impose yours on on, on us. And that's okay. been the mantra of Raymond James, of my business uh, okay. over the years. And I think that that works very effectively to make sure that there's a home professionally for everybody. And have, have you found like, you know, when you meet potential clients or business leaders in the career that you're in, that you think, my God, these people are still living in the past? Yes, but, you know, do remember that that's also my judgment at play right? Yeah. I will hear views where I'll be like, oh my goodness, dinosaurs, where are they, do they know it's 2023? But that's my lens, right? I, that's the story I have. I have a story in my head about what it's like to be in 2023 and the belief systems that prevail and that they're behind. But it's also me passing judgment. So I try to say, okay, what's this person's context where are they coming from? And if I have to work with that belief system, then I have to make a decision. Am I willing to work with them or not? Oftentimes, if they're expressing a political view or they're expressing a personal belief, and it has nothing to do with the day-to-day of what I do with them, right? What Mm -hmm. I do with them is financial industry, financial markets oriented. So if they're expressing a belief outside of the markets, then so be it. It doesn't really impact me. Mm -hmm. But you know, if if ever, and I haven't come across this, if ever they, they express a belief on, uh, and want me to do something that I don't believe in, then it's on yeah. me to say no. Sorry, yeah. don't want to work with an individual who asks that of me. Luckily, our clients are incredibly professional and I haven't been put in that position so far. And for your position, what three skills do you think people, just for anybody else as well that wants to pursue something that you've done, um, what three skills do you think is important to succeed in the career that you have? The three skills that I think are incredibly important in any 
his career is number mm-hmm. one, the ability to control your own mental capacity, right? Back mm-hmm. to health and well-being. But this yeah. is actually, people don't realize, Anisha, this is a real skill for success. Yeah. The fact that you can remain more equanimous than others when there's crisis situations, when things are going haywire, means that you're more reliable, more reliable person and you're someone who can be positioned to manage and lead over time. It's a huge skill to have that you decide how you feel about a situation and not let circumstances dictate how you feel. So work on your mental core strength because it will pay dividends in your work life in spades. Mm-hmm. Number two is very much a skill of communication. And communication is different from public speaking because public speaking uh, in, you know, entails doing it in front of loads of people. Communication is written and mm-hmm. nonverbal, right? Both. 70% of what we communicate is non-verbally, right? Our body language, the way we project our energy. Mastering communication, both verbal and non-verbal, as well as written when it comes to verbal, is hugely important. One of the most important skills I learned was as a first-year university student, I took a class on critical writing, changed the way I write in every way, shape, or form. So again, it's a teachable skill. And you need to be able to communicate well. You don't need to be able to speak publicly well. You know, you could realize that's not for you. That's optional. But learning how to communicate effectively is not optional. It's incredibly important. The third thing that I think is hugely, hugely valuable for any professional is to find a way of managing relationships effectively. It's a very huge moniker. But we need, there's three types of management. Managing up managing sideways and managing down. Mm -hmm. Many people are good at managing up, i.e. messaging to your bosses, all the things I've done, look at me, I've done so well. They're not as good at managing down, for example. And they're just really end up being caustic to their juniors. And they may be so-so at managing sideways. So figuring out how to manage effectively up, down, and to your peers laterally That whole pie has to fit together effectively for you to rise and do well somewhere. People often overlook that. Oh, as long as I have a good relationship with my boss, that's all that matters. Not anymore. Not in this day and age. You need to be able to have a really good, healthy, functional relationship with your juniors. They can't think you're a jerk. That's not how it goes anymore. So those days are gone. Those were the dinosaur days where that was okay. That's not okay today. So making sure that you feel make people feel valued and you have healthy working relationships and dynamics mm-hmm. is super important. And so you mentioned as well in as number one, you know, mental state, but meditation has been important to you and part of your key to your success. Do you also consider your diet? Hugely important. And if I haven't had a good diet day, I I feel that all day long, and I know you do too. Mm. And those that overlook that, just change it and see the difference it makes. Because I was mm-hmm. like, well, I don't know if this stuff is, you know, maybe many years ago, I was like, I'm not sure how important diet really is, etc. When you change it and you see the difference it makes to your mental clarity, to your stamina, yeah. to your energy, woo, it's gonna, you're gonna feel it when you go back to the McDonald's that day, right? <laughs> and you're gonna be like, oh, I feel the difference. And the older you get, the more the difference that you do feel. 
So it's a huge, it's a hugely pivotal part of my life is what is going in my body. And of course, I have naughty pleasures. We started this wonderful conversation with that. Yeah. It's okay to indulge in it, but the ethos of your well-being comes from what you put in your body. And it's how you treat your body is a reflection of who you are and how you treat yourself mm-hmm. and how you treat the world. Absolutely. So hugely important. And my last question to you is, how would you describe your personal journey to where you are today? I would use the growth mindset to describe it. Right. So mm-hmm. Carol Dweck's work, professor at Stanford, for those who haven't read it, there's so many books out there around uh, about her and about the work. My arc has been and continues to be learning. If I had to use one word, it would be growth and learning towards, but very mm-hmm. inter- interchangeable. People ask all the time, well, how did you get so successful? How did you start this business and sell it to a Fortune 500 and do that with two other businesses and sit on all these boards, et cetera, et cetera. It's because I'm constantly in the space of learning and evolution. The only constant in life is change. And you have two types of change. Either you're growing or you're decaying, right? There's no stagnation Mm -hmm. in nature. So hopefully you put yourself in a position to grow and learn and get better and better at your art and get better and better at yourself and evolving yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's been the big arc of my life is okay, that didn't go very well. That conversation with that individual, that caused some tension. Or that project, we failed at it or we didn't do very well at it. What are the learnings? What did I learn from this? Write it down. Mm. So you go on to the next moment in life, you'll make new mistakes and make and learn new lessons, but you're not going to repeat or you're highly unlikely to repeat the lessons, the hard lessons and truths you learned from the last experience because pain is one of the best teachers out there and you learn from that not oh fantastic these are the three nuggets this is the gift of the moment Mm -hmm. i'm gonna take that gift and move on i'll go make new ones so that's been my big arc is learning and growth learning and growth on repeat Mm -hmm. there's no bad moments there's no such thing as failure it's all a gift to teach me something to get better and stronger for next time that's absolutely inspirational and i hope that you know my listeners will find it as much mind nurturing as i have today so thank you so much sanina it's been an absolute pleasure having you today and thank you for joining me thank you so much for having me it was such a pleasure